You are listening to the Genesis Podcast, a community of faith, love, and hope. As we look to the scriptures, it is our desire to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. Good morning. It's good to see you all here with us. We are going to be talking today about anger. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about fear. At the beginning of the year, I wanted to address some things that I felt uh, were kind of prominent in society. Fear because of the uh, terrorist activity that took place in Paris and in San Bernardino. And we talked about how fear really, whatever you fear, masters you. Fear is the boundary that you set. And how what we need to do is not allow other things to set those boundaries, but to only allow God to set that boundary. If we fear the one who loves us completely, then the perfect love casts out all fear, and he is the only one who masters us. So that was kind of what we talked about with fear. And then I wanted to talk about anger the week after, but I became a grandfather, and I can't be angry and talk about anger when I have a grandson. It's like, no, can't do that. I'm too happy to talk about anger. But I'm angry now. No, I'm... (laughs) But now I want to talk about anger and bitterness. And the first thing we need to do is kind of get, I guess, a definition of anger. A strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. Now, anger isn't always bad. There are times when you should be angry. There are things that should make you angry. When you see injustice, you should be angry. Jesus, when he was in the temple and saw them making money off of the people and requiring them to pay to pray, made him angry. He made a whip. I know, a whip. And he threw tables over and he drove them out. He was angry. And so there are things that we should be angry about. Because what anger does is it causes us to focus on things. One of the the things that anger does to our body, to our chemistry, is it, it triggers kind of a fight or flight response. And so in the case of Jesus, there was a fight. I'm going to fight for what is right. Almost saying I'm going to fight for your right to party. I don't know. Just came to my mind. Beastie Boys was in there somewhere. Some things just don't go away. Um, he, He was going to fight and he was focused on that injustice. But sometimes it's fight. The anger, it just sends you into a rage. Other emotions that trigger this response sometimes are fear, excitement, anxiety. The adrenal glands flood the body with a stress hormones such as adrenaline and cortisol. The, these things start to take place and it affects our biology. When you get angry, you guys know that. You know what it's like to get angry, right? Hello? <laughs> Cricket, cricket, cricket. No, Sam, just you. We're all fine. Your ears get red. You, you, you start sweating or perspiring, and you start kind of your pulse races. When you get angry, it just triggers this response. And what happens is the brain shunts blood away from your gut towards the muscles in preparation for physical exertion. Your heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up, 
the respiration increases, the body temperature rises, the skin, the skin perspires, the mind is sharpened and focused on whatever that thing is that is annoying us, causing us displeasure or hostility. We get focused on that thing. Have you ever been angry about something and you just mentally can't let it go? Anyone? Rest of you are just asleep or lying, okay? (laughs) You know what it's like to hold on to something. Someone does something to you. A friend, a spouse, they say something, they forget something, they do something that hurts you. And you're just dwelling on it over and over again. It's recycling in your mind. It's like this train around the Christmas tree just keeps coming back, coming back. It circles and you just cannot let go of it. That, that's what it does. It focuses on those things. It can focus on that displeasure, that hostility. And some of the things it does is some of the short and long-term health problems that have been linked to unmanaged anger include headaches, Digestion problems such as abdominal pain, insomnia. As I'm looking at these, I'm thinking, oh man, I must be an angry person. (laughs) Increased anxiety, depression, high blood pressure, skin problems such as eczema, heart attack, stroke. Those are all things that take place when we're angry and that anger takes control over us. And so just like fear will limit our lives, anger focuses our lives so that we see nothing but the thing that is angering us. And so what it does is it blinds us. And that's why you've heard the term blind rage. Because when you are in that anger, you're in that bitterness, you're in that hostility, you don't see or think about other things. You focus on that thing that causes the anger. And, and so I want to look at what anger does, and I want to look at what we can do to deal with it. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 17. Ephesians chapter 4 Verse 17, if anyone needs a Bible, you can raise your hand. If not, you should put one on your phone. I recommend the U version, the Y-O-U version. It's a great tool to have with you all the time. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul's writing and he says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Okay, that should catch our attention. This is something important. He's insisting on this that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. And so he's saying you're to leave these people who have no concern about the things of God, who who are just living a life detached from God, living a life in, in a sense like an animal, just satisfying what their desires are. Verse 20 says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned 
when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. An important thing, falsehood, that deceitfulness, speaking truthfully, because falsehood or lying actually makes you angry, right? Speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body, in your anger, do not sin. There it is. Anger isn't the problem. It's how that takes place after. I see someone mistreating a child. It makes me angry. How I respond is what I need to concern myself with. How I deal with that. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. There's that festering. There's that repetition. There's that round and round going. You have to get off that train. You can't let it consume you. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. It's talking about you've got to put it to bed. You've got to end it and not take it to bed with you and wake up with it the next morning. Anyone done that? Times maybe like my wife wakes up in the morning and she hits me. I'm like, well, what was that for? We were mad the night before, and like, you need to let it go. Let the sun go down on that anger. Don't wake up and hit me. Th- those things where you're angry and it just consumes you. Don't wake up in that anger. And he says, because, verse 27, do not give the devil a foothold, because that's exactly what is happening with that anger. Your focus on the hostility, your being consumed with that thinking. Your mind is focused on these things. And what happens is it starts to agitate you more and more. Not only is it not good physically, it's not good for your relationship with whoever that person is. Maybe there was a reason to be angry. They did something that hurt you. But if you just stew in it and don't move from that place, it is going to kill you. And it's going to give the devil a foothold where? In that relationship. And so don't give the devil that foothold. Don't allow him to do that. Verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, I love that he's writing this to Christians. Hey, you guys who are stealing, knock it off. So I'm looking out here, okay? If you're stealing, steal no more. Again, this leads to anger. Anyone get ripped off before, right? I remember going in and outside and seeing my truck, the window open. I don't remember leaving the window open. My stereo's gone. It made me angry, okay? Don't do that. He, he, all these things are connected. They're talking about how we deal with each other, okay? So steal no longer. Instead, work with your hands. Why? So that you may have something to give to those in need. Contribute. Don't just take. Don't be a consumer, but help those. Verse 29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, 
but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. When you are angry, what comes out of your mouth? It's probably unwholesome. It's probably things that are hurtful. There are things that I say when I'm angry and I look back and I think, I wish I didn't say that, but it's too late. See, all this is about having this kind of control. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Anger will destroy not only you, but the relationships that you are in. And this goes for every relationship. Parents, children, husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, siblings, workmates, classmates. Doesn't matter the relationship. Anger has an effect on on those things. It will affect who you are and how you respond to these people. It's not saying let people walk over you and do whatever they want. You can be angry, but the sin not talks about taking that anger, that hostility, those things that are bothering you and not letting them fester, not going to bed with them, not letting them become a part of your life, not letting them conduct your conversation, not letting them conduct your actions. Instead, you take control and you can deal with the wrongdoing, but not allow it to conduct control you. Now, saying that is really easy, but when you're in the heat of the emotion, it is very difficult to let it go. But you see, this is what Paul is telling us to do. This is why he says, don't let the sun go down. This is why he's telling us not to to let this bitterness seep in us and start to take control of us. Why? Because it grieves the Spirit of God. That, that's who we were sealed with. We need to get rid of that bitterness, that rage, that anger. We need to take care of it. And he gives us a little hint on how we take care of it is because you've been forgiven. And, and so your perspective in seeing this is important, how you see this. Because if you hold on to your anger it is going to take control over your life. Proverbs 29 verse 11 says, fools give full vent to their rage. In other words, they don't control it. They just let it go. But the wise bring calm in the end. Okay, a fool just lets it go. No containing, no no holding on to it. A wise person brings calm in the end. It runs its course and then it's over. I was upset about what you did, but now I've dealt with it in my own heart and I'm not going to allow it to affect this relationship. There may have to be boundaries in the relationship. If someone abuses you, someone hurts you, you could be angry and you can forgive them. But forgiving doesn't mean you stay in a place where you're going to be abused. 
If I forgive someone, it doesn't mean I have to trust them again. I'm not going to hold that against them. I'm not going to allow that to be something that embitters me towards them. I'm going to pray that God's blessing be on their life, that they do better, that they become better, that they have healing in their own life, in their own relationship with God. I want them to move forward, but I don't have to let them continue battering me. See, that has nothing to do with the idea of forgiveness, but in this idea of anger, we need to bring the calm in the end. You see, because when you start getting angry, you become very unreasonable. Pretty soon, it's not a matter of what is the right thing to do. It's a matter of I want to satisfy the rage that I have. I want to indulge in the hostility that I feel. I want you to hurt like I hurt. And so we do foolish things when we're angry. We say foolish things when we're angry. I remember one time driving, and this was a long time ago. I was in my 20s. It's a long time ago. And someone cut me off. And I was going to visit my girlfriend, now wife. I was driving there, and I think I was late, and so I was kind of in a hurry. And this person just cut me off and then flipped me off. You know, it's like, you cut me off, and then you flip me off? And I just went ballistic. I just flipped out. I just stepped on the gas. I went pulling ahead of them, and I did this slide, and I cut them off in the middle of the street, and I jumped out, and I thought, what the heck am I doing? I thought, this is crazy. It's like sense came back to me in the middle of the street as I'm jumping out of my car and this car is heading towards me. And I'm thinking, I could die. This is stupid. You see, when you're angry, you, you lose this kind of focus. And there's an example of this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 9 to 13, uh, of the Pharisees. Jesus has been doing a lot of things. He, he's been working and doing miraculous things, but some of the times that he's doing it is on the Sabbath. Now he's doing that on purpose. He's not doing it to make them angry, but he's doing it to bring an awareness to their tradition, to to let them know that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so he tells them in verse 9, going on from that place, he went into the synagogue and a man with a, a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to bring charges against him. They asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, understand what they're saying is, is it lawful? Our law is the most important thing to us. And we believe it is wrong to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, That's not the case. It's okay to do good on the Sabbath. And he gives them this example that they do on a regular basis. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. Now, what would you do? I think, wow, that was amazing. What did they do? Verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Think about this. Our law says you shouldn't heal on the Sabbath. That's what they thought. 
he healed on the Sabbath. We're going to kill you. Didn't their law say you shouldn't kill? Where'd that go? Out the window. Why? Because they're consumed with this hostility towards Jesus. This man is healed. A miracle. Let's kill Jesus. In John's gospel, after Lazarus was risen from the dead, it says the Pharisees were trying to kill Lazarus. What did Lazarus do? He died. It wasn't his fault he got brought back to life, right? He's just like, yeah, but he was evidence of the power that Jesus had. And so against their own beliefs, they wanted to kill him. And you see, what anger does is it blinds us to rationale that we should have. We, we, we start to betray the things that would actually be helpful because our anger is consuming us and we're focused on the rage, not on how to make things better. So many times in arguments, if you're arguing with your husband, if you're arguing with your wife or, or someone who's close to you, something happens. It is our tendency to want to be right. And I used to love to debate. I would love to go to my family so that we could argue. I remember the first time I took Corrine to our families, we had a Christmas dinner, something, and it was this big debate. And I was a follower of Jesus, and most of them were atheists. And so it was just this big family thing. And, and I don't know if it's an Italian thing, but it got loud. And we're just like, hey, pounding on the table. We're just yelling. And to me, it's just normal. And she's like, oh, my gosh, what is this family? We're like, What? And I look back and I, it was just about being right, just about proving my point. And when you're just concerned about being right, you miss the opportunity of what's necessary, how to make things better. You see, I can argue with my wife and try and prove myself right, but my relationship with her doesn't get better. Did I win? What did I win? I feel better about being right. Yeah, but it's not helped the relationship at all. And what anger does is it becomes very selfish, very self-focused. And so we need to recognize that these things, you know, because of their anger and bitterness towards Jesus, they were willing to defy the will of God to satisfy their desires. We just read to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Anger is very deceitful. Who's it deceiving? Me. It's deceiving me. I need to prove I'm right. I need to, I need to make my point. I need to do this. And now it's all about me. And I'm not helping the situation. I'm just trying to help myself. James, chapter 4, verse 1 to 3, verse 1, it says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Where, where does this arguing come from? It comes from the battle within you. Because you want, you consume. And so... He says you kill. The idea is you will 
laid waste anything that hinders your desire. And that's exactly what anger is doing. Our desire of hostility for vengeance, when not controlled, gives way to the quarreling, to the fighting. You know, we don't like someone's attitude. We don't like his or her political view. We, we don't like their religion, their lifestyle, or even their race. And, and anger starts to take place. I, I wanted to share this last week because it was Martin Luther King Day, the day after. And, you know, it, it's something that we have to face as the church. That racism is still very prominent in our midst. Even though Christ came to make us a new humanity in Christ where there is not Greek, there is not Jew, and you can fill in the race. There's not free, there's not slave, there's not male, there's not female. We are one in Christ. Martin Luther King was right when he said the most segregated day of the week is the hour Sunday morning. And if you go to most churches, you will see one race, one group of people with one idea. And it's a tragedy that Paul spoke more through his epistles about unity than he spoke about justification with God, more than he spoke about sanctification, more than he spoke about any of those theologically important things. He spoke about unity. And yet the church is so segregated. In social classes, political, you go to some churches and it's all about how you vote. They'll give you a list of how to vote. Here's the Christian way to vote. And here's an opportunity for us to see what makes me angry when I see someone who believes differently than I do. What are you going to do? How is that going to control you and the dialogue that you have with other people. I'm going to hammer this home because it's an election year, guys. I'm going to be talking about this months to come, so hope you're ready for it. Because I hope that Genesis is known more than anything than by its love. And I don't care who you are, and I don't care what your beliefs are. You're welcome here, and we will love you. You can be an atheist. We will love you. Oh, we have an agenda. We're going to try and help you understand. You know, I think God's true. Maybe you could be a Buddhist. We will love you. I may disagree, and I have conversations with you, but I'm going to love you first and foremost. And so that's the point here: is to bring these things home. How do we deal with anger? How do I deal when I'm so upset about this person and what they said? You know, I. I saw this YouTube clip and it just made me so angry and someone posted it that I know and that made me more angry because I know them and I hate this clip. Now I kind of hate them for posting the clip. Anyone relate to those things? And so Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 15, Paul kind of tries to move us to seeing things different. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. It's a good thing. You're called to freedom. What does this look like? Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. 
For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I love that. He says it's fulfilled in one word, but then there's seven words there. It's fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because there is one point that has to be driven home. More than your concerns about this is your concern about them. You see, one of the, the difficult things to do, especially when you're a parent and your, your child might be involved with something and it's something that's harming them, I, I don't want to get angry about the thing. I want to help them. It's not about, hey, I'm right, you're wrong, you better change. It's about you need to change for yourself so that you can do better. That's my goal is to love you as myself. But he says in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Who's he talking to? He's talking to us. He's talking to the church. Stop biting and devouring one another. I remember someone told me, hey, this person talked about you. I go, what? Yeah, on their, their study, you know, a pastor spoke about you. I go, really? Yeah, and so I listened to it, and it wasn't flattering. He didn't say my name, but he was talking about me. There are people who hate me. I know, me. There, there are people who don't like me and what I say. How am I going to deal with that? Am I going to bite and devour back? See, I disagree with what they say, too. But it's a check on my heart. I, I remember hearing about this one pastor who, who said something about me, I think multiple times, and I heard that some problems happened. And my first response, just to be honest with you, is like, yeah, there you go. And my second response was, really? And it was the spirit checking me saying, are you going to be that when I have been this to you? And so my third response was, again, repentance, and then praying that the Lord would help them through his struggle. Because I might disagree with how he does things, but I need to love him as I love myself. You see, I have that moment where I can let anger take over and I can start talking bad. Yeah, well, you see see what's happened to him now. That's what you get for talking about me. That's what's going to happen. Or am I going to say, you know, I need to pray for this person. It's hard because it hurts when someone says something about you. It bothers me. I don't like to know people hate me out there. You know, just like, why? You know, here's some candy, you know, are we good? (laughs) But you see, what Paul is trying to do is help us to have a different mindset instead of focusing on the hostility, on the anger, is focusing on the remedy. 
And one last area we're going to look at is in Luke chapter 10. It's a story that you're all familiar with, that of the Good Samaritan. And I think there's something that we need to see here that's important for how we live all the time. I mean, you're familiar with this story in Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to just by himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. Now, important part of this story is this person, and we don't know anything about them other than what happened to them. We don't know their ethnicity. We don't know their social class. We don't know anything about them. This was a person who got robbed, beaten, left for dead there at the side of the road. So verse 13, a priest happened to going down to the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him passed on the other side. But a Samaritan as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. A Samaritan was someone who they frowned upon, someone who they looked down upon. I I just saw this video. You know, you always get these little minute videos that are meant to make you cry. And and it was this video where this, this couple walks in with their little child, their little girl, and there's a guy, he looks a little kind of dingy, and he's sitting there in the waiting room, and the daughter sits down next to him and the mom goes, oh no, come here, mija, or something. It was in Spanish, but they, they said, come over here. And they kind of moved away and they just left this guy sitting by himself. And the guy looks kind of scraggly and dejected. And then the nurse goes out and she goes, yes, you guys can come into the doctor's office now. And so the family comes in and then she says, oh, you too. And they're all looking like, who's this guy? Why is he coming into our office? our waiting room. And so he goes into the waiting room and he's standing up and they're sitting down and, and the doctor talks to the little girl and she goes, you look like you're doing well. It looks like everything went well. And there, the dad kind of says, is there a problem? Is there something wrong? He goes, no, there's nothing wrong. I just wanted you to meet the man who is the bone marrow donor for your daughter. Right? Yeah, I know. You're all, oh. you'll go video, you'll YouTube it, you'll find it. And all of a sudden you start realizing, oh, wow, here I was thinking this, and this person was actually something else. So we don't know who the person was who got robbed. We just know the Samaritan is that someone else, that person who was frowned upon, that person who was looked down upon. A Samaritan traveled, had pity on him. Verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you might have. 
which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So, something that has been useful to me in dealing with people who see things different than me, people who disagree with my belief system or even my faith, people who are antagonistic towards my faith, people of different lifestyles, people of different religions, people who are different than me or the way I think. One of the things that's been useful for me and that I've made a personal discipline is I find helpful that when I see someone and I engage with them is to first focus on how God sees that person rather than how I do. And this can require a pretty big paradigm shift. No matter who that person is, how does God see that person? Which you might want to try, which might be very, very difficult is one day sit down with someone and say, I want to try something with you. I want to experiment. Can you pretend? I just let me talk to you as if you were this person who I have a problem with. And I want, I want to talk to you as if I was that person. What would I say to myself from that perspective? Change how you think. What does God see about them. What is God seeing? Maybe God is seeing a brokenness. Maybe God is seeing something that's hurt. Maybe God is seeing a person who's been abused, who's been mistreated, and now is living a life in response to all that they've been hurt. How will that affect how you now see them? So the first thing I want to do is change how I see that person. Think about how does God see them? I want to ask a question. What is the first thing we could say about any person in the world? What's the first thing you could say about everyone in the world? God loves them. A lot of people might say, well, all have sinned, right? Everyone's a sinner, because that's true. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. I, I find that that's usually the response that most Christians give. And again, that's a true statement. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. But there's still a more fundamental truth. Namely, every person is created in the image of God. Every person is created in the image of God. Everyone carries a little piece of God in them. And, and this truth proceeds and qualifies all other things, including our fallen state. Whatever else you might say about them, they were created in the image of God. And I suggest that we should first and foremost see all people as image bearers of God and only then see their fallen condition after we see that they bear the image of God. Now I can see they're in need of salvation, but I see instead of trying to drive that home, I'm actually trying to pull something out of them. 
You see, that's really the right theological order and priority. When Jesus was on the Sermon of the Mount and he said, you are the light of the world, who was he talking to? Was it just the elect? Was it just the disciples? Was it just the Pharisees? It was the multitude. How could he tell a multitude of people, you are the light of the world? Some of them were tax collectors. Some of them were probably Roman soldiers. How could he tell those oppressors that they were the light of the world because they bore the image of their creator? And what he was trying to do is pull their original state out of them to recognize what God has first put in them. They can deal with their brokenness, but see them first in this place I suggest that that's what we see in people first. Our role becomes to look for God in them, to call forth the image, to fan it to flame, to help them both to see and become like the one that they are supposed to reflect. We still see the sin, but it no longer dominates our perspective. It merely qualifies it. Yeah, people are sinners. Secondary, they are first and foremost image bearers first things must surely come first we were created in god's image before we all collectively and individually fell into sin so from a theological perspective we are on solid ground genesis 1 comes before genesis 3 you bore the image of god then the brokenness took place and we form this kind of thought perspective, it changes the way we engage other people. It changes how you talk to someone who is a Muslim. It it changes how you talk to someone who is an atheist. It changes how you talk to someone who's homosexual. It it changes how you talk to someone, whatever they are, because first and foremost, they bear the image of God. And what I want to do is pull that out of them, fan it to flame, help them to see that. And in light of that, the brokenness will be apparent. It changes my conduct towards them. You see, I can't be proud of my state if I see them in that state. How many times has Christianity been thought of as putting people down? belittling people, judging people, thinking, I have all the right answers, you have nothing. And here, instead, seeing them in this image, it changes how we see them. This has to become a practice response. It's not something that is automatic. It's something we have to put into practice. And for too long, we've engaged people primarily on the basis of their sinfulness and their sin, And God is at work in all humanity, not because all know God, but because all in some way reflect God, whether they or we see it or not. Maybe we can change our anger towards someone and how it controls us in the things that we disagree with by first seeing them in this light. Dietrich Bonhoeffer cautioned us and he says, I can never know beforehand how God's image should appear in others. That image always manifests a completely new and unique form that comes solely from
from God's free and sovereign creation. So I don't know how God is going to look in that individual. I have to wait and see. But I know that it's in there. And so instead of seeing ourselves as right and everyone else as wrong, see everyone as being created in the image of God, potential to be the light of the world. First and foremost, and talk to them with that respect. And then you can address whatever needs to be addressed and whatever comes into that conversation. But when you respect that person, it changes your demeanor and it changes the conversation. Have you ever been around a celebrity or someone you admire? It's fun to watch people when they're like that. I think of some of the things that I've done when I'm around someone and I get like, you, you, like, oh, what should I say? I never think about what should I say. I always just talk, right? But when you're around someone important, what, I don't want to, I'm a really fan of your work, you know? It's like, oh, why did I say that? Everyone says that, you know? I want to, uh, you're really famous, you know? What do you, what do you say when you, Meet someone, a famous basketball player, someone that you admire. You, you think about what you're saying. Why? Because you admire them. You hold them in high esteem. What if we saw everybody like that? What if we saw everyone as bearing the image of God? And, and what if we went to them and saw others as more important than ourselves? What if we loved others as we loved ourselves? What it, would it do with those areas that make us angry? How would it affect how we communicate with these people? And how would it bring life to us as well as to the conversation that we have with them? You're going to be angry. But change your perspective. Get off the train. Don't let it circle the tree again and again and again. Get off and say, okay, I'm going to bring calm here, and I'm going to engage this, seeing you wherever you are, whoever you are, as bearing the image of God and being more important than me, despite your race, despite your religion, despite your political status, despite these things. You are so important. You have no idea. Serve one another with humility. If we would do this, we could start doing what Christ has told us to do. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so must you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Who is your neighbor? one who needs your help. Let's be the light of the world. and Let's not let anger steal the love of God from our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your mercy. Lord, we pray that you would help us when we get angry to entrust these things to you, to not allow them to consume us, but, Father, to, to change our perspective so that we see people as you see them, that we would interact with them in a way that would recognize your image in them. And, Father, that we could actually persuade a person by seeing more in them 
instead of less. And I thank you for your example, Jesus. That while we were yet and still sinners, you died for us. You left us an example of what it is to really love. So I pray that we would have this example. And we would love like you love. And we could change the world even as you changed us. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.